In the chapters to come, will David falter and fail, overcome at times by anger and desire? Absolutely. But is David a power-hungry prince, a Machiavellian man who seeks first and foremost to wield power? Not at all. In fact, I think never in the annals of history and literature has there been a statesman less Machiavellian than him. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 88, The Soul of Saul and the Heart of David. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. It was in June 2015 that the art world was greeted with the news that the creator of a painting long in the collection of the Mauritz House Museum in The Hague had finally been confirmed. Mazel tov. It's a Rembrandt. Thus, the AP reported, quote, After a CSI-style investigation and restoration spanning eight years, the Mauritz House Museum in The Hague has declared that one of its star paintings really is by Dutch master Rembrandt van Rijn. The announcement should end years of is-it-or-isn't-it debate about whether Saul and David was a real Rembrandt. Researchers used advanced X-ray techniques to peer through several coats of paint that had been applied during previous restorations and establish that the original pigments were the same as those Rembrandt used in the 17th century. Paint sampling showed that the primer used was typical of Rembrandt's studio in the 1650s and 1660s, end quote. The painting identified as a Rembrandt depicts a scene that we have already read, so let us briefly review. Saul is scolded by Samuel. As Samuel turns to leave, Saul grabs him by the cloak and the cloak tears. Samuel responds by punning prophetically off what has occurred. God, he says, has torn the kingship of Israel from you and given it to one better than you. Immediately after this decree, a ruach ra'ah, an evil spirit, descends on Saul. Saul's servants sought someone to cheer him up, a young man who could play the harp, and they bring him David who is both Yodea Linagain, adept at playing, and is also Igibor Chayel, a warrior. Saul both loves and is suspicious of this young man. And, as David earns the adulation of the Israelites for his astonishing feats, a seething hatred seizes Saul. And one day, as David sits playing the harp before the king, Saul suddenly launches his spear at the warrior harpist. Rembrandt here, gives us David at the harp and Saul clutching the spear right before it leaves his hand. I have been to The Hague to see this painting, and it is both striking and strange. There is a mystery surrounding the choices made by Rembrandt in creating it. But perhaps, drawing on some of the verses we have already seen, and on some of the chapters yet to come, we will be able to better understand this work of art, and therefore also the souls of the two figures whose tale we tell. After David, with Jonathan's help, flees from Saul, the paths of the present and future king diverge, then rejoin, and then diverge. In discussing some of the next plot lines, we will focus on the interactions between Saul and David, and then turn next week to another story in these very same chapters that does not involve Saul at all. After embracing Jonathan, David flees to the city of Nov, which is filled with Kohanim, priests that minister to God. David does not tell them that he is now a fugitive from the king. Pretending that he is on government business, he asks one Kohen, Achimelech, if there are any swords available. He learns that the weapon of Goliath is kept there as a treasure. Chapter 21, verse 10. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom thou didst slay in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the apron. If thou wilt take that, take it, for there is no other save that here. And David said, There is none like that, give it to me. David is overseen by a servant of Saul, Doeg the Edomite, who informs the king, 
Still obsessed with David and possessed by what the Bible calls an evil spirit from the Lord, Saul orders his servants to slay the entire city of Nov, but every one of them, to their enormous credit, refuses except for Doeg. Then the terrible crime of Saul's career takes place. Chapter 22, verse 18, And the king said to Doeg, Turn thou and fall upon the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned, and he fell upon the priests. The entire city is killed. Saul pursues David through the Judean wilderness, and ultimately to the desert area known to this day as Ein Gedi. As Saul relieves himself in a cave, David steals up behind the king, and one of the most fascinating scenes in the entire book unfolds. David is urged by his men to kill the king. After all, the king does desire to take David's life, and yet David refuses. Chapter 24, verse 4. And the men of David said to him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said to thee, Behold, I will deliver thy enemy into thy hand, that thou mayst do to him as it shall seem good to thee. Then David arose and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And it came to pass afterwards that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. This scene, ladies and gentlemen, tells us more about David than almost any other. Reading it, one is struck by the utter lack of political self-interest that David shows here, and it highlights what others might miss about this man. The Bible scholar Robert Alter has argued that David is, quote, the first full-length portrait of a Machiavellian prince in Western literature, end quote. And he adds that David's story is one, quote, about man in all his susceptibility to the brutalization and the seductions of exercising power, end quote. And this, I think, is incorrect. It is not true. The reason why David is so compelling is because this man who lives a life of violence and desire lives simultaneously a life that is first and foremost one of love and faith. And when the former comes into tension with the latter, in the end, it is the latter that ultimately triumphs. Faith triumphs. Here, David has come upon the very king that seeks to kill him, a threat that could be neutralized at this very instant. And not only does David not kill Saul, David is overcome with remorse for even having torn the robe of the king. Saul is God's anointed, and the reverence David feels for God prevents him from acting in his own self-interest. In the chapters to come, will David falter and fail, overcome at times by anger and desire? Absolutely. But is David a power-hungry prince, a Machiavellian man who seeks first and foremost to wield power? Not at all. In fact, I think never in the annals of history and literature has there been a statesman less Machiavellian than him. David then speaks to Saul from a distance, revealing that he could have killed the king but chose not to, and Saul breaks down and weeps, revealing that in at least one part of himself, he still loves David. Verse 17 and 20. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept, and he said to David, Thou art more righteous than I, for thou hast rendered me good, whereas I have rendered thee evil. And now behold, I know well that thou shalt surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thy hand. This is what Saul says, and yet, two chapters later, we find that Saul is again seeking to kill David, and almost the exact same plot unfolds. Here, Saul is sleeping, and David chooses not to kill him. And again, Saul acknowledges that the kingship will go to David. We thus need to confront the character of Saul. He hates David, yet he also seems to love him. How does the story make sense? Here we turn again to what is now identified as a genuine Rembrandt, the artist's depiction of Saul and David. One of the oddest aspects of the painting, what had been assumed by some to be something painted over the original, 
is the entire motif of the curtain. As one of the art historians at the Mauritshaus Museum noted, in all the other artistic portrayals of the story of Saul, we do not find anything like this. Here in the painting, Saul is shown wiping his eye on a curtain. Indeed, Rembrandt himself, when he was in his youth, painted the very same scene, but very differently. Thus, as a Mauritshaus scholar pointed out, it's a very strange motif for the greatest of artists, Rembrandt, to choose. We see in this painting David is playing his harp, and Saul is profoundly moved by the music. He's crying, wiping his eye, but only one eye. Tears is only coming out from one side of his face. But the other eye is hate-filled and furious. How can this be? Nevertheless, x-rays reveal that the curtain motif was there from the very beginning, and that therefore assuming, as we now know from the analysis of the paint, that this was created by Rembrandt, then it was Rembrandt who chose this concept, a king crying out of one eye while exhibiting his fury with the other. Where does Rembrandt get this from? Why choose to have a curtain obscuring half of Saul? Why choose to have one eye exhibiting one emotion and another eye the other? The answer, I think, can be found in the Bible's description of the Saul-David relationship in chapter 18, verse 9. Vayhi Shaul oyen et David mehayom hahuvahala, which can literally be translated as Saul kept an eye on David from that day. The words are not usually read literally, but here Rembrandt paints exactly what the text says. He keeps one angry eye on David, but in the other eye, he is still moved by the music, still crying tears. If the eyes are the window into the soul, Rembrandt here creates for us a man whose soul is divided. For when we study the story of Saul, we find that even as his hatred of David leads him to terrible actions, nevertheless, as we have just seen, his love of David still seems to remain within as well, if only for moments. Is Saul the hate-filled monarch overcome by the threat of David's kingdom? Or is he the man who is anointed by the prophet of God, who weeps at what has happened to his relationship with David, who makes known his love for the very David that he has sought to destroy? Saul is both these things. That is the sadness at the center of his story. To put it in a slightly different way, if the tearing of the cloak in the story with Samuel marks the tearing of the kingship from Saul, then what results is a torn Saul and a torn soul. Part of Saul still reflects the anointing of God, which occurred when he was chosen originally for the kingship. It is that part that cannot fail to be moved by David's songs, the music of David. But the other part of Saul has been overtaken by the darkness. This is why Rembrandt uses the curtain, which quite literally divides Saul before our very eyes and thereby highlights the division of Saul's eyes. Rembrandt thus gives us a divided Saul, made manifest in the contrast between his two eyes, the rage-filled one on the one hand and the teary eye on the other. Rembrandt here is keyed into the fact that eyes, what they indicate and what they can and cannot see, is at the heart of the David and Saul story. For recall that when Samuel first comes to Bethlehem to anoint Saul's successor, he seeks someone who is of similarly impressive physical appearance, and God informs him man looks with the eyes, but God looks to the heart. There is irony here. Samuel is a seer who does not yet see properly. And then Samuel sees the shepherd boy that will change the world forever. We know that he is not tall, and we will discuss other aspects of David's appearance next week. But the Bible makes one feature clear in chapter 16, verse 12. We are told that he is yifeinayim, with fine eyes. David's eyes, like Saul's eyes in Rembrandt's painting, are a window to his heart. Look not to the superficial. Look not only with the eyes, God says to Samuel. And the text hints that in David's eyes there can be seen the heart within. It is this heart that has such reverence for God 
that David feels bad even for touching Saul's cloak, because the king that seeks his life is the anointed of God. It is this heart of David that we know composed the following psalm. Here are some of its verses. To the chief musician, Al-Tashcheth, Michtam of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave, Be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me, for my soul trusteth in thee. Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge, until these calamities be overpassed. I will cry unto God most high, unto God that performeth all things for me. This is who David is. Thus Rembrandt shows us in the curtain dividing the king, the divided heart of Saul. Saul's tale is not yet done. There are several more stories yet to come. And David's tale, of course, is just beginning. But even now, the events recounted in Samuel and the Psalms that David composes about them shows us David's soul and his incredible faith-filled heart. And so, we can conclude our talk today by marveling at what David's spirit has to teach us, citing the wonderful words of Thomas Cahill. Quote, Prior to the humanist autobiographies of the Renaissance, we can count only a few isolated instances of this use of I to mean the interior self. But David's psalms are full of eyes, the eye of repentance, the eye of anger and vengeance, the eye of self-pity and self-doubt, the eye of despair, the eye of delight, and the eye of ecstasy. The psalms are a treasure trove of personal emotions and a unique early roadmap to the inner spirit, previously mute of ancient humanity. Whereas the historian must normally guess at the emotions of his subjects from incomplete or indirect evidence, David's psalms reassure us that 3,000 years ago people laughed and cried just as we do, bled and cursed, danced and leapt, that our whole repertoire of emotions was theirs. End quote. And to this I would add that David shows us first and foremost the eye of faith and of utter reliance on and reverence for the God of Israel. That is why his heart will always have a place in ours. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together next week. Signing off.